0: and players such as Archie Manning, Warren Moon, and Simpson. Jeremiah, eldest of nine, ached inside the night of his arrest, knowing how much this would hurt his father, with whom he had argued so bitterly about the war. Now, Horrigan faced up to a dozen years in federal prison. Even if he got just a year or two, he understood it meant his father would die while he was in prison. Lord, how could he have let it end this way? A Call to Action, Hiding in the Old Post Office Attic Horrigan graduated from Canisius High School in 1968 in the same class with Tim Russert, future Washington Bureau Chief of NBC News, and Anthony Yurkovich, future creator of Miami Vice. Three weeks before their commencement, anti-war activists in Catonsville, Maryland, burned draft records with homemade napalm. Corrigan enrolled at Fordham, where he eventually found himself drawn to a subculture of the American anti-war movement known in the newspapers as the Catholic Left. He began to spend time at a church rectory in the Bronx, not far from campus, where war resistors took inspiration from the so-called Catonsville Nine. The Nine included Catholic clergy, notably Brothers Daniel and Philip Berrigan, later styled as rebel priests on the cover of Time. Daniel was a Jesuit, Philip a Josephite. Their trial was national news. So were their convictions. And their brazen act of civil disobedience gave rise to a national escalation of anti-war marches, sit-ins, and flaming draft cards. Horrigan dropped out of Fordham after his sophomore year to throw himself into the movement. He returned to Buffalo in the summer of 1971 to participate in a daring draft board raid, Thrilled at the notion of destroying the records of men he'd known as boys in hopes this would keep hundreds out of the war. He found a community of like-minded leftists, including Chuck Darst, whose older brother David, a Christian brother, had been a member of the Catonsville Nine. The action, what the Five called it, would go down the same night as an action in Camden, New Jersey. The Five wouldn't find out until later that an FBI informant inside the Camden Raiders blew the whistle on the Buffalo Action, too. The Buffalo Five walked into the old post office during business hours and hid in the attic, waiting for the building to close and darkness to come. They taped burglary tools, even filed down fondue forks to their bodies. They carried green laundry bags to haul away Army intelligence files. And they had a pair of inflatable kiddie pools for filling with black fabric dye to obliterate any draft records they couldn't shred by hand. The men stripped down to t-shirts and tidy whities, the women to t-shirts and shorts. This was not solely because of the hours they'd spend in an attic sweatbox. They also worried the rustle of pant legs brushing and shoes clacking could echo in the yawning city block of a building with its six-story, skylit atrium. Police would find seven pairs of shoes at the scene of the crime because the five was really seven. Two men managed to sneak out and dash into the night when those red lights flared. Horrigan, knowing he was caught, forlornly whistled the Colonel Bogey march. It was a way to convey that the raiders were not any sort of threat. His wobbly warble dissolved as cops rushed in. From his jail cell that night, Horrigan thought about the terrible arguments he'd had with his father over the war. One had come on the night of the first moon landing in 1969, the summer after his freshman year at Fordham. As a fourth grader, he'd told his father that when he grew up, he wanted to be the first priest to say Mass on the moon. His father so loved that story. Now, on the night Neil Armstrong took one giant leap for mankind, Horrigan conflated rocket ships with Air Force bombers. Father and son traded bitter words. It would be different two summers later There was no anger in the air when father paid son's bail. He said, you're my son and I love you, Horrigan recalls, and that's all I had to hear. Illegal, not immoral, nonviolent action justified. The Buffalo Five refused to stand when Judge Curtin entered his courtroom on the first day of trial in mid-April 1972. They explained they saw everyone as equals and didn't want to disrespect others by standing only for him. Curtin cleared the court, and when he returned, the five stood, but only because Curtin had instructed the bailiff to take their chairs. That set the tone for a remarkable nine days, during which the Buffalo Five argued they'd acted to prevent crime, not commit one. The defendants represented themselves, though Curtin assigned Vincent E. Doyle, Jr., a top defense attorney as co-counsel. The Buffalo-